Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you downloaded us. And we have a wonderful guest today, Dr. Charles Powell, who's the Janice and Coleman Rabin Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He and I overlapped at the University of Chicago. Um, he is a student um, when I was a chair of a department and uh, he's gone on to great things. I'll tell you about them in a minute. But I should remind you, we are brought to you by Life's First Naturals, lifesfirstnaturals.com, the makers of both TrueBiotics and Bovine Colostrum. You can go to their website, lifefirstnaturals.com. They've got randomized control trials showing where they are beneficial, lifesfirstnaturals.com. Um, Dr. Powell is at Mount Sinai in New York, and he, as I said, is the Janice and Coleman Rabin Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine. After his medical degree at the University of Chicago, he trained in internal medicine at Columbia University. He is an NIH-funded investigator and uh, has a great interest in uh, sleep as well as sepsis and was instrumental in getting ventilators to, um, how do I say it, to be more um, available during the pandemic. Um, Dr. Powell, let's go and talk about a little bit about lung disease and cancer, which is one of your major um, interests and where we've had some major advances. Sure. Dr. Roizen, it's great to connect with you again, and it's a pleasure to speak with you about lung disease as it pertains to cancer treatment. So tell me about the advances. It used to be, um, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, even the 90s, maybe even the O's, O to O10, if you got a diagnosis of lung cancer, it was close to a diagnosis of death. And it was most closely associated with two things in that era, I guess probably still is, but you can tell us that is uh, tobacco use and asbestos um, and maybe a little radiation thrown in. What's, what's happened to survival rates? What's happened to diagnosis of lung cancer now? Well, I think it's fair to characterize what has happened with regards to lung cancer as a, a welcome progression from approach in which there was quite a bit of nihilism to approach now, where there's quite a bit of optimism about the achievements that have been made and more so about what we can hope for in the future. In the past, and this is really referring back to during my training time, the periods that you're referring to, it, the survival rate for advanced lung cancer was quite low. And and most of the clinical trials at that time for therapeutics in lung cancer really focused on trying to determine standard chemotherapy regimens with a focus on minimizing the toxicity, appreciating that there really was not much difference in terms of benefits from the different drugs that were being tested at the time. 
And, and as you re- referred, the survival rate was low. The five-year survival rate for lung cancer around that time was 12%, which is much lower than the five-year survival rate for the other common cancers that included breast cancer, colon cancer, and prostate cancer. So there were several things going on at the same time that may have explained that low survival rate. One has to do with the the lack of availability of drugs that were particularly effective in lung cancer, and the other was that lung cancers were commonly being detected quite late. Over half of lung cancer cases were detected when they were metastatic, and around that time, screening programs were in place for breast, prostate, and colon cancer, but it wasn't until about eight, nine years ago that we started to see the emergence of screening programs for lung cancer, which have been successful in generating a stage shift and in improving lung cancer mortality. But then if we circle back to the conversation about treatments for advanced lung cancer, what we have all seen over time is that the science has identified specific subtypes of lung cancer that show exquisite sensitivity to treatments that are specifically targeted to alterations in the tumor cells that are most commonly found in the most common type of lung cancer, and that being adenocarcinoma. And and the first agents were those that were targeted to mutations in the EGFR gene. And in patients who had EGFR mutated tumors, which were about 5 to 10% of lung adenocarcinomas in the U.S. and Europe, and almost 40 to 50% of lung adenocarcinomas in Asia, the treatment of patients with those mutated tumors with agents targeted to those mutations, and those are tyrosine kinase inhibitors, erlotinib and gefitinib at the beginning, those patients would have a response rate of 70%, which was much different than the 30% response rate that characterized what would be expected with treatment with a typical chemotherapy regimen. So that was the first. That was the first success with the first molecular alteration in lung cancer that was specifically tied to a specific drug that established a paradigm for how to approach advanced lung cancer, which is to then identify if a specific targetable alteration is present, and if it is, then to use the increasing armamentarium of targeted drugs that have been developed because EGFR was the first, but subsequently there are at least nine molecular alterations with partner targeted therapeutics that demonstrate efficacy in patients whose tumors harbored the specific alterations. So the, the landscape and the approach to treatment has changed remarkably with remarkable successes following along. So what I'd like to do is go through a little bit of that in uh, and break it out. So the first advance was really in earlier diagnosis. And what facilitated that? Was it the MRI? Was it the CT scan? Was it uh, better screening of smokers what, or people who had quit smoking? What, what led to that ad- earlier diagnosis advance? Yeah, so many things going on concurrently. It's, it's, it's really been a, a wonderful story. So several things have been happening. The most impactful event that's been happening or happened was the Surgeon General's report. That was back in the 1960s. And the Surgeon General's report made clear that lung cancer was directly attributable to cigarette smoking, and that led 
to a decline in smoking prevalence rates in men initially, and then a decline in prevalence of cigarette smoking in, in women that followed along over time. And those smoking prevalence rates have been going down significantly, albeit plateauing now. And thankfully, the incidence of lung cancer follows about 15 to 20 years after a change in smoking habits, and that's contributed significantly to a decrease in lung cancer cases and a decrease in lung cancer deaths. But nevertheless, there are still, there are still over 200,000 cases of lung cancer every year, and the key is, if possible, to identify those tumors early at a, where there's an opportunity for curative treatment. What's led to that earlier diagnosis? In other words, we've got a decreased smoking population, but what's led to the earlier diagnoses in those people who do end up with lung cancer? So we have now a strong evidence base that indicates and shows convincingly that CT of the chest is an effective approach for diagnosing lung cancer early and that a pivotal trial called the National Lung Screening Trial that was performed about 10 years ago showed that if you compared high-risk individuals who were screened with a CT scan to those who were screened with a chest x-ray, those screened with a chest CT scan had a 20% decrease in deaths due to lung cancer and a 7% decrease in deaths overall. So that was the firm evidence base that supported the rollout of CT screening in high-risk individuals, which is present today, for which the implementation is increasing over time. It's crucial for the earlier diagnosis of lung cancer, and, and it saves lives. And so one of your avenues of research has been working with people with nodules to quickly identify which ones are needing more uh, therapy you know, or more testing or more invasiveness. Now, the second question I have to ask is, what role did the Human Genome Project play, or was it proteomics in general, play in identifying those nine, the nine molecular variants that, we, that you have talked about targeting differently? Well, the investment in genomic technologies has been pivotal to leading to the advances in, that we've just talked about in lung disease, pivotal in leading to the advances that have been crucial in other lung diseases, such as cystic fibrosis, with the identification of the key mutations for, that are useful for identifying patients who will respond to drugs such as Ivacaftor. So the investment has led to the availability of technologies that allow physicians to be able to order tests that can survey the entire genome to identify specific molecular changes that will inform the potential benefit of a variety of different therapies. And that, in turn, has led to the development of therapies, in turn, that have been demonstrated to show a benefit in, in tumors or non-malignant cells that harbor these specific alterations. It's been pivotal, the investment in, in the Human Genome Project and investment in genomic technologies. Now, one of the things people will ask about 
is how did you get to be a professor of sleep medicine as well as lung disease? How do those two relate? My discipline is the discipline of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine, and that is the training discipline, and that is the name of my division. We have physicians who spend most of their time practicing sleep. We have others who spend most of their time practicing critical care. We have other physicians who spend most of their time practicing pulmonary medicine outside of the critical care unit or outside of of sleep. Some of our physicians have specialized boards in, in sleep or critical care according to what they do. And my boards are in pulmonary and critical care medicine. I don't have boards in sleep, but I certainly have been trained and, and comfortable with diagnosing sleep-disordered breathing. But for the complex cases, I'm very happy to collaborate with my partners who have specialized expertise in that area. We're talking with a um, incredible expert, if you will, uh, Dr. Powell, um, Charles Powell, and I guess you can go to respiratoryinstitute.org, which is from the Mount Sinai School, from the Mount, at Mount Sinai, it's on ICHN, School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where he is uh, the Janice and Coleman Rabin Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine. Um, and is that the right website, the respiratoryinstitute.org? The respiratoryinstitute.org, yes, thank you. Um, and uh, obviously the interest is that um, many of the medical schools and medical, if you will, uh, healthcare organizations have thought about a continuum of care in the earlier diagnosis and part of obviously a lack of um, air exchange or of gas exchange, that is getting more oxygen in and more CO2 out, um, occurs with some of the problems of sleep medicine. So it might be natural to put sleep medicine into um, the lung, into the areas with lung and critical care. Other places put it in neurology, some other places put it into ENT, but the expertise in sleep medicine remains an important component of uh, care, uh, obviously. Now, the we've learned... Oh, if Dr. Rosen, I just would like to comment on, on that um, very important comment that you made about the, the crucial input from various specialties into sleep medicine. Uh, I just would say that in our division, our sleep group is comprised of specialists in pulmonary, in neurology, and, and ENT. Uh, and I think that type of interdisciplinary collaboration is key for success in, in diagnosing and treating patients who have a variety of sleep disorders. Thank you for, for adding that. Now, we, the survival rate, you said, has gone from, I guess, 12% to what percent now if you had lung cancer, if you took all lung cancers, um, those are diagnosed early versus late. Um, knowing those nine uh, molecular uh, attack points, what's the five-year survival rate now? And then what do you, and what do you see on the horizon? So it's almost doubled. What do you see on the horizon? Well, I, I see 
a significant improvement in terms of relative increase, as we just commented upon. But I see also a, a tremendous potential for upside because really the increase has been attributable to the recent development of multiple targeted agents in lung cancer. And every year there are additional targets that are being identified with effective therapeutics that will increase the proportion of tumors that would be amenable to this type of approach. And this is happening concomitantly with the increasing implementation of lung cancer screening to increase the proportion of cases diagnosed at an earlier stage. So I think it's realistic and reasonable and wonderful to assume that the trajectory of increase in lung cancer survival will continue to improve over time. Uh, hopefully to get to the rates that we're seeing for colon cancer, breast cancer, and prostate cancer over the course of the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, I just want to thank you very much. We're talking and have been talking with Charles Powell, who's the Janice and Coleman Rabin Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. The respiratoryinstitute.org is how you find out more about this program. I'm Dr. Mike Reisen, and you've been listening to You, the Owner's Manual. This is 1120B. The Bs are always wonderful guests that have great information, like Dr. Powell. Um, the A's, the latest medical news of the week, and what it means to you. We're brought to you, as usual, by... Uh, Life's First Naturals, lifesfirstnaturals.com. You can find more at therespiratoryinstitute.org. Caitlin is our engineer. Thanks very much, Caitlin. We'll be back next week, and hopefully you will be too. Thanks again.